Okay, can you guys hear me? Okay, good morning. If uh, you're just visiting, we're normally not this empty. There's 84 men on a men's retreat this weekend, so it's usually a lot fuller than this. So. Uh, we're glad you're here. If you are visiting, welcome. I want to welcome all our live stream audience from all over the country, actually all over the world, Idaho, Texas, New York that I know of, uh, Israel, Shalom, Ted and Linda, hi to you guys. Uh, I know there's people in South Africa, New Zealand, people from all over watching, and I want to welcome everybody that's watching on live stream. Um, all right, let's open with prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to seek you, to learn more about you, Lord. I pray that you would show us through your word, Lord, uh, more of your character, more of who you are, more of uh, what you are and what you're about, Lord. We just thank you so much. Pray for the men as they travel. Pray that you'd get them back safely, that you'd be with them, Lord, uh, that each and every one of them would come back a little different change for the better, Lord, that uh, this weekend was a blessing for them. And I pray that they would become uh, better husbands, better brothers, better sons, Lord. We just thank you, Lord, for that opportunity for the men. And again, get them back safely. Uh, teach us your ways, Lord. I pray that you would uh, just reveal wonderful things from your word, Lord. We just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles or phone app, go ahead and turn on your phone app. Uh, open to Luke chapter 7. Uh, starting with verse 11. Okay, Luke 7, 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The young man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report <clears throat> went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. Um, this story is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke, which I think is interesting because it's two large crowds. So this wasn't an obscure little thing that happened. Many, many, many people witnessed this. Um, and what I love about Luke is it's written in a chronological order so that we have a timeline and we know when certain things took place in the book of Luke. Um, since we're in Luke, turn to Luke 1. And he explains this, uh, this timeline, this chronological order. Luke 1.1, 1, 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So we know 
by this timeline, this chronological order, we know when this story took place. This was early in Jesus's ministry. Um, in Luke 1 and 2, uh, John the Baptist was born, Jesus was born, he was taken to the temple, dedicated, uh, he was prophesied over by Anna. And uh, then in uh, um, chapter 3, he is, he, he is baptized. And in chapter 4, he is tempted in the wilderness and he begins his public ministry. And in chapter 5, he calls the first disciples. And in chapter 6, he chooses the 12 from among his disciples and, and named them apostles. Then he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he went to Capernaum and healed the centurion's slave. And that's in Luke 7, verse 1 through 10, right before this story. And then it says, soon afterwards, he went to Nain. So this was, so we know chronologically when this took place. Like I said, this was very early in Jesus's ministry. Um, now, Nain was an ancient city in, in lower Galilee. And it was in the southernmost part of the region of Galilee. It's about 25 miles south of Capernaum and about eight miles southeast of Nazareth, where Jesus is from. It's basically between Nazareth and Mount Tabor is where the city of Nain was located, and it's just south of those two, because Nazareth and Mount Tabor, if you go straight across, are on the same parallel line. Um, Nain, the word Nain means lovely, a delight, or beauty, or pleasantness. So, uh, but right now, it isn't very pleasant for this widow. Um, she's, I mean, just imagine... Uh, what was going on with her. I mean, she, she's a widow. She's already buried her husband. Now she's lost her only son. And so to, to know how many people, it says that a large crowd. It says his disciples and a large crowd. And more than likely, not just the 12, but several of his disciples. Because if we go back in Luke 6, Luke 6, 12, it says it was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So, um, these are the 12 he called out of his disciples. He had many disciples. Remember, he says he sent out the 70. So he had, Jesus had a lot of people following him. So it was not only his disciples, it says, and a large crowd. So I can, I mean, the scripture doesn't tell us a number, but I can only imagine it was a lot of people. And then there's this funeral procession. It says a large crowd is accompanying, accompanying the widow. And, you know, obviously they're mourning. They're just... This poor woman, I just, I can't imagine, like I said, what she, the grief she was experiencing. Uh, she'd already lost her husband, like I said. Uh, pain and anguish, the sheer and utter heartbreak that must have been so devastating for her. Um, but unfortunately, it gets even worse. Um, to be a widow in ancient times in Israel was exceedingly difficult burden to bear. There was no life insurance, no social security, uh, no 911 to call if you're in trouble. Uh, no one to protect you. You're basically on your own. Uh, but if you had a son, he would provide for you, he would care for you, he would watch over you, he would protect you. 
So basically your very existence was dependent on this son if you were a widow. Now all that was gone too. Her future now looks so bleak. She had, she had no hope. I mean, she's not only to, to just, when I first read this story and it became one of my favorite passages in the word many years ago, I just, God just showed me his compassion. When you understand what this poor woman's going through, you think, okay, she's burying her son, but it's just so much more than that, that grief. But now her future, she has no hope. Her future looks so bleak and she's just, she's devastated. She's destitute. Um, that was all gone. Everything's gone. Um, and she knew her life was gone. It was destroyed. And couple that, like I said, with the grieving, the death of her only son, uh, we get a better idea of where this woman was at and what she was going through. Um, in ancient times, many people felt that if calamity came upon you, uh, it was because of sin and God's punishment, that you did something wrong, you deserve this. Wow, this wouldn't happen to a normal person. And as we all know, that's not the truth. Um, but that's what many people believed, especially in ancient times, that, wow, this, this, this comes upon you. What did you do wrong? This shouldn't happen. This isn't normal. You know, you must have done something wrong to, to have this deserved to you. And that was their mindset a lot. I mean, look at Job's friends, okay? Um, many people felt that calamity came upon him because of sin and punishment. And his friends said, you surely must have sinned, all of them. And, and God's punishing him for it. It says his friends were miserable comforters. And his wife, who was the only thing he did not lose, told him to curse God and die. So Job lost everything. He lost his wealth. He lost all his sheep, his oxen, his donkeys, his camels. He lost it all. And then, but way worse than that, he lost his 10 children. All the one. Could you imagine losing one child, that, how painful that, but to lose all of your child, 10 children at one time was just, just wow. I just, it's beyond my comprehension. And in Job 2.9, we look at his wife, his wife's, he, and now, and he's covered with boils. He's has sores. He's scraping from the pot shears. He's scraping these sores. It says from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. His entire body is covered in boils. So he's grieving. He's lost everything. He's lost all his livelihood, everything he owns. He lost his 10 children, and now he lost his health. And he must, and it says that Job was the most righteous man on earth. He must, I mean, he had to have felt abandoned by God. Like, why, you know, how did this happen? I've done nothing. It said Job, Job was the most righteous man on the earth. Uh, in Job 2, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I'm sorry, I don't think I could pass that test if I was put in that bad of a situation. It's like, he didn't, he didn't sin with his lips. He didn't blame God for any of it. And that just, that just blows my mind. And it says his wife told him to curse God and die. And Job's wife, I think, has always gotten a bad rap over the years. Everyone says, oh, look at this. She tells him to curse God and die, and she's a horrible woman, but... Uh, in some ways, he was experiencing similar emotions as the widow of Nain. 
and maybe even on a ten times greater scale. You know, she lost her ten children too. You know, we, we forget about that. She lost all ten of her kids. And so imagine that grief. And now her livelihood, all their wealth was gone. It had been taken away. She had no hope. And her husband's sitting there covered with, with boils. And so in her mind, she's probably soon to be a widow. He's going to die soon. And so I think of what she was going through. This poor woman is just, just grieving. I mean, I just I couldn't imagine losing ten children. Couldn't imagine losing one, but losing ten would just be so devastating. So, I mean, I'm not saying that she was proper. I believe she sinned. And I like how Job, he didn't fully rebuke her. He didn't say, you're a fool, don't talk. He just said, you're speaking as a foolish woman. He just, he actually gently rebuked her. And, but again, I, I've always felt that, um, that she's gotten kind of a bad rap because we have to kind of put yourself in her shoes. What was she going through at that time? And, and there's another widow in the Bible who lost her children and felt God had dealt harshly with her. Can anybody think who that might be? Naomi. Okay. If we uh, turn to the book of Ruth. Naomi lost her husband and, and her two sons. Ruth uh, chapter 1. Verse 8. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May, they be, may the Lord grant you that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely go with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they, may, <clears throat> that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, tonight. Return, my daughters, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lift up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she's talking to two widows. There's three widows right here. You have to understand that. Ruth is a widow. Both these women, they lost their husbands to her two sons. So this is a grievous moment for all of them. And to think of what the suffering, the anguish, the pain uh, that they're going through is just absolutely amazing. I just, uh, it blows my mind. And then in chapter 15, or chapter 16, or 15, I'm sorry. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. 
when she saw that she has, was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Uh, she felt the Lord's hand had gone against her. Uh, Naomi means pleasant one, and my delight in, in Hebrew. And when she returned, she said, no longer call me Naomi, call me Mara. And Mara means bitter, because the Lord has, has dealt, dealt harshly with her. And that she felt that God's, God, was against, God had abandoned her and God's hand was against her. And we have to understand when we're in a trial that God allows things to happen. He allows sometimes horrible things to happen. And he's not abandoning you. That's when he wants you to really cling to him and turn to him and cry out to him and be with him. Um, so in, in Ruth, nine, and now I'm still in one, chapter 19, so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So she's blaming God, that God's hands against her, that God has afflicted her. Um, yeah, God has allowed this to happen to her, but it's what's her mindset? Her mindset is, look at what God's done to me. I'm bitter now. And God doesn't want us to be bitter. He wants us to get better. And bitterness is a terrible thing. The uh, Bible says don't let <clears throat> bitterness spring up that can defile many. When you have bitterness and unforgiveness, when you have bitterness in your heart, it can hurt many, many people, uh, not just yourself, those around you. So here she is. All this, we all know the story of Ruth, Boaz. So Boaz redeems her, buys the field, comes to raise it up. So he's raising up children in the name of her husband. You have to remember that. That's the way it was in that time. He redeemed the field to, to have children. So in, uh, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. Then the, woman said to Na <clears throat> to Na the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Now Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this is David, King David's grandfather. Uh, Boaz is King David's great-grandfather. And I find it interesting, Boaz was a half-Gentile. He was Rahab the harlot's son with Solomon. So, and here you got a half-Gentile, half-Jew, and a 100% Gentile. So Obed's three-quarters Gentile in, in, the, in, the, in the lineage of David and of Christ. So I love how God does that. He, he incorporates. That's, that's by design. That's definitely not a coincidence that, uh, that salvation isn't just for the Jews, that it's for everybody. Um, 
I mean, this is just an amazing outcome. Here she is, bitter and blaming God, God's hands against me. And now these women, when they say, left you, the women said, may his name become famous in Israel. It's, you go to Matthew 1 and you look in the lineage of Christ, there is Obed's name right there. And Ruth's name, which rarely is there a woman's name. Rahab and Ruth are the two women and also Bathsheba who are in the, the lineage of, of Christ and they're both Gentiles. I find that amazing. Um, so to go from thinking that God had abandoned her to blessing her beyond belief after the end of the, the outcome of her trial. And I believe that's what the Lord wants us to do is to realize that when we're in the midst of trial, when we're in the midst of pain, when we're in the midst of suffering, um, our focus is always like tunnel vision. I don't know how else to describe it. Like that's, we're looking at ourselves. Our eyes are a lot of times in the wrong place. I know I'm 100% guilty of that. Uh, I've failed miserably in many of my trials in my life. Um, self-focused, got my eyes off the Lord. But he wants us to, to think of him Turn to him. Uh, remember, God knows what we're going through, and he will work it to our good. Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him and called according to his purpose. Not just some things, not a few things, everything says all things, even the really bad stuff. And when we look back on our lives, a lot of times it's the really bad stuff where there was the most growth. I heard a story one time where someone telling me, Many years ago, look at a valley and look at a mountaintop. When we're on the mountaintop and doing everything's great, what's on top of the mountain? It's rocky. There's not a lot of growth. There's, it's just everything's great and doing good. You got a good view, nice breeze. When you're down in the valley, that's where the, the hard parts of life are. But that's where it's lush and green. That's where the growth is, is down in the valley. And so God allows us to go through trials, and that's where the growth comes in our lives. Okay, so what, is, what have we learned about widows? What is God's heart towards widows? God has this incredible heart towards widows, and he cares for them so much. Because widows are just, especially back, you have to understand the times. Back then, widows were just, they had nothing, no, no future, no hope. Their life was bleak. Their existence was just so terrible. I mean, I just, I feel so much for them. And that's when I first started reading this story many years ago, I, I realized, wow, God's compassion for these women. It's just, I thought this whole story was just about compassion. And then as I studied it more and meditated on it more, it's so, so much more than that. It's so much deeper than that. Uh, God's heart towards widows, Exodus 22, 22 through 24. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan, if you afflict him at all, and if he, he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled against, <clears throat> will be kindled, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. So like, wow, God takes that really serious, how he feels about widows, if you mis mistreat an orphan or a widow. Um, Deuteronomy 10, 18. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Um, 
like I said, there wasn't welfare back then, but God had designed a welfare system where they called it gleaning. If you harvested your field, you would leave some. When you picked your grapes, you would leave some, and then the, the alien and the sojourners and the, the widows and the poor would come and clean up. They, that would, they'd get like the, the scraps, so to speak, and they would get what's, uh, what's left over. And that was God's design of like his welfare system. Um, oh, no. The very next, chap, very next verse, Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Um, when you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And verse 21, when you gather grapes from your vineyard, you shall not go over it again, but, you sh- <clears throat> but it shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. So God cares for widows. He cares very much about them. His heart is for them. Uh, he understands what they're going through. Uh, just like this widow in Nain, when Jesus comes to the gate and sees her, he knows what she's going through. He sees that. It says he's moved to compassion, you know. It says he felt, in the NASB, it says he... Uh, says he felt compassion for her. Um, but it was, it's actually much deeper than that when we study, which we'll talk about here in a moment. Um, Psalm 65, 68, verse 5, a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 146, 9, the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. So God has always had a heart for widows. Um, Like I said in chapter 13 of this story, of this passage, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. And he said, do not weep. So the Greek word translated compassion there, uh, splagnizomai, okay? And it's a two-part, it's a compound word. And the first part means internal organs. And... So splagnizomai literally means to be moved so deeply by something that you feel it in the pit of your stomach. So uh, that's what I love about the Koine Greek, that it's so much more descriptive than the English. Oh, he felt compassion. Like, okay, I feel compassion towards somebody. But when you, when you understand the Greek and the translation of it, it says he was moved deeply. You know, he was in, his, in his inner being, he was moved to compassion. Um, Jesus was so moved in compassion, he told her, you know, do not weep. And I could just, me, I mean, I imagine what she was going through. She must have been thinking to herself, what do you mean do not weep? Don't you understand what I'm going through? Don't you know? I mean, I just, I'm a widow. I just lost my son. I have no future, no hope, you know. And what do you mean don't weep? But God's a compassionate God. And he knows exactly what she's going through. And a matter of fact, he's going to do something that is, is an amazing miracle. But it's just, and it's so compassionate. Um, how, com- how full of compassion is he? Psalm 25, 6. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from old. Psalm 40, verse 11. You, O Lord will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. Psalm 51.1, be gracious to me, O God, 
according to your loving kindnesses, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 69, 16, answer me, O Lord. Your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me. Psalm 72, 12, for he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Psalm 103.13 and 14, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he, is, he knows our frame. He is mindful that we're but dust. See, God understands. He knows. He created you. So who would know more about you than your creator? Like when we have a problem with the car or whatever, we take it to a dealer who made that vehicle, and they have all the right proper parts, they have everything. We take it to somebody certified, or if you have a tech problem with a computer, you know, let's say you have a Dell computer, you call Dell, so hey, they know because they, they've made the thing, so they know what's going on. Well, God's our creator, so he knows. It says he knows our frame, because we were, we were formed in our mother's womb. And he's mindful that we're but dust. He knows how weak we are. He knows that we have struggles and that we have our flesh. And he's, he's very, he's very, he knows that. And I think we lose sight of that. It's like, God, you don't know. You don't know what I'm, no one knows what I'm going through. God always knows what we're going through. Um, Psalm 116.5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, yes. Our God is compassionate. Psalm 145, 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Isaiah 54, verse 10. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. But my loving kindnesses will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Aren't you glad his mercy's new every morning? That we can wake up, we can have a clean slate every day. Because we fall short on a daily basis. We're never going to measure up. We're never, I mean, we have flesh, we have temptations, we have things that are going on. I mean, obviously we don't want to utterly rebel and turn from God. But we never live out a day perfectly. Not one day ever in our lives. And so... But we can wake up with that clean slate every day. Lord, his mercies are new every morning. And he longs for us to just come to him. Lord, please forgive us. His mercies are so, he just, the more you study God and know God and, and understand just how compassionate he is, how merciful he is, how loving he is. Um, Nehemiah 9.31. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are gracious and compassionate God. Micah seven nineteen. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, he will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. 
I mean, these are just some of the scriptures that talk about God's compassion, his mercy. He is so, so compassionate. And it's, it's overwhelming. It's humbling. And he calls us to be compassionate as well. And I know that's something that I haven't always done the best at, having compassion for others, because my eyes would be on myself or my problems or my situation. And I didn't take time out to see, wow, the person's having a hard time or struggling or they're going through something right now. And God wants us to extend that compassion to others that he has to us. And the more we understand his compassion, the more we experience his compassion, I believe that we, we tend to become more like him and have a heart for him. Um, you know, the Bible says, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. I remember I was at a church gosh, many, many, many years ago in one of their little rooms, they had a quote up and it said that um, a joy shared is twice the joy, uh, but a pain shared is half the pain. So when you have compassion with someone, you come alongside with them and, and mourn with them, weep with them, it, like you're actually taking some of that burden on yourself. You're, we're, we're called to bear one another's burdens and that's what God does. God bears our burdens and he wants us to do the same to others. Um, now, back to the story in Luke in 14 and 15. Uh, he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Uh, pretty amazing to say the least. I mean, just could you, wow. Just can you imagine seeing this? Uh, the text says that he sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother, but we don't know what he said and we don't know her reaction. The, the, the text doesn't say anything about that. Uh, can only speculate, but I would think it would be first disbelief and then astonishment and then just sheer joy. My son, I have my son back now. Now she has a hope uh, for her existence. Um, this incident may very well have made the crowd think of another widow and who was met at a city gate, whose son died and was brought back to life. And, and that's Elijah. Um, in 1 Kings chapter 17, you can turn there if you'd like. 1 Kings 17, uh, verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city... Behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please give me a, a water in a jar that I may drink. And the Lord had sent, her, sent him to there, and he told him that I'm going to send you to a widow, and she's going to, I've gone to her, and she's going to take care of you. Uh, now go down to uh, chapter, or same chapter, 70, but verse 23. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And the sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in her. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to bring <clears throat> my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. See here again, the mindset, it's because of my iniquity that my son's dying. This is because something I've done. God's judging me. Uh, but he said to her, verse 19, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. 
he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to this widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, and he called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray to you, let this child's life return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. This story in Nain, this is a complete, this is a parallel of, of this story with Elijah. Both met a widow at a gate. Both raised the, their son from the dead. Um, But Jesus didn't have to call out to God. He said, I say to you, young man, he said, young man, I say to you, arise. He spoke. He just said it. He didn't have to go lay on him. He didn't have to plead with God. He just said, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus was showing his authority as God. He was proclaiming his deity and that he had power over death. Uh, Jesus tells this very thing to John in Revelation 1. Uh, You can turn there if you'd like. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Um, John knew firsthand that Jesus had authority over death, even before Jesus came and did this. Uh, John was there. It says his disciples were with him in this crowd. So John witnessed this. John saw this widow's son being raised. Um, and this was the first of three people that, that Jesus raised from the dead, and John was an eyewitness to every one of them. Uh, the widow's son, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And John was an eyewitness to each of these miracles. I mean, could you imagine? Uh, absolute miracles. I read of someone coming, being raised from the dead. I mean, I could only imagine seeing something like what it would freak people out. I mean, can you imagine being at a funeral and someone sits up in the coffin and starts talking? Someone said, arise. Um, I don't believe it's a coincidence that John wrote the gospel of John and the book of Revelation. They tell us that Jesus is God more than any other books in the entire New Testament. Both those, both those books proclaim uh, Jesus' deity and that he is God. Um, the second time he raises someone is Jairus' daughter. Uh, we can, it's the very next chapter in Luke 8. So it's chronologically after, understand, it happens shortly after this. In Luke 8, 40 through 42, and then 49 through 56. And Jesus returned. The people welcomed him, and they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus. And he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter. He had an only child. About 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds 
were pressing against him. And then in 49, verse 49, while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Let him go. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, and James. So John, again, is an eyewitness. Only three people besides Jesus' witnesses and, and the girl's mother and father. And the girl's fa- father and mother. So there's six people, five people and Jesus. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, stop weeping for she has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him knowing that she had died. So this wasn't a spiritual death. This was a physical death. This girl is dead. Um, He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, and he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Like I said, only five people witnessed this. And then Lazarus is raised. In Luke 22, 20 through 27 and 40 through 44. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And then in verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, which was the way they buried people there. They would wrap them in linen and cloth. And his face was wrapped around with cloth, Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. So in these, all three of these resurrections, he didn't have to cry out to God. He didn't have to pray to God. He didn't have to uh, ask God. He, he, he just spoke it. He just spoke and they came back to life. Something only God could do. How did God create the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1? He spoke them into existence. God said, let there be light. God said, let us make man in our image, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God just, he spoke it. And I believe Jesus is showing his deity that he is God, showing that he has the power. Again, like he told John, he goes, I have the, the keys of death in Hades. Um, So back to Luke 7 in the story. In um, verse 16, said, Fear gripped them all, 
And they began glorifying God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. He showed this earlier in Luke chapter 4. If you want to turn there, go back a few uh, chapters. Luke 4.16. Now he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's... He's actually read from Isaiah 61. That's where that is, 61 verse 1. Um... And all were speaking well of him, wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three, three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So they were outraged. So Jesus says, he says, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Uh, this implies that Jesus understood his role as a prophet. He, wasn't, he was a prophet. I mean, he was the Messiah and God in the flesh. He was a God-man, but he was a prophet. Um, because he recounts the story here of Elijah. And during Peter's uh, second sermon in Acts, Acts chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the, your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So this great prophet that's going to be, that's going to be arisen, the, the coming Messiah, that's Jesus. Jesus knew his, his role as prophet. And right after he raises the widow's son in Luke 7, 11 through 17, in 
uh, 18 through 22, you can turn there because we're already there in Luke 7. Luke 7, 18, this is immediate, this is the very next verses. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Okay, so John's disciples were there. They witnessed this, Luke 7, 18. They witnessed this miracle of Jesus raising this widow's son. So summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. He gave sight to the blind And he answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So Jesus wasn't just a prophet, but he was the expected one. He was the Messiah. Uh, So you have to understand, these people have been waiting for centuries and centuries and centuries for God to return to them. There had been a, a there's, they call it the 400 silent years in Israel where God had no, no new prophets were raised. He revealed no, nothing new to his people from Malachi to John the Baptist since over a 400 year gap. So these people have been longing for God, for a touch from God, for God to speak to them. Um, and not since Solomon had Israel been at peace. There's always been someone coming in, conquering them, ruling over them. Um, And they knew that the Messiah was prophesied to be a conquering king and a ruler. But they don't understand that that's the second coming. They miss the first first coming. He's a a humble, he's a suffering servant. Um, So we don't know from Scripture about this time period in Israel because, like I said, it's a silent time. There's, after Malachi, it's over 400 years before, uh, you know, the next, till we hear from God, till there's scripture again. And, but we do know from various writings and world history what was taking place during these, these silent years. So before these 400 years began, we knew that back in, in 539 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, he captured Babylon, and he released the Jews from captivity. They'd been uh, taken away from, by Nebuchadnezzar, taken to Babylon, and they'd spent for 70 years. Uh, they were in captivity. And then in 536 B.C., the exiles began to return to Jerusalem and Judah. They came in four different waves. Um, the temple was rebuilt around 516 B.C. Uh, in Ezra chapter 6, 14 through 15, the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar, and it was the sixth year in the reign of King Darius. So that was... uh, about 516 B.C., and then in uh, 444 B.C., Jerusalem's walls were rebuilt. Uh, if you read in Nehemiah, he has a 
a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other because they were being attacked. And, and then, so Israel was under Persian domination from uh, about 539 to 333 B.C. Then from uh, 332 to B.C. to 63 B.C., Israel was under rule by one faction or another of the Greek Empire. So the Greek Empire, after Alexander the Great died, he had gone and conquered most of the world at that time. Uh, but when he died, there was a, a power struggle and faction, so it was divided into four different parts. I believe it's uh, Ptolemy, Seleucid, uh, Pergamum, Asian Minor, and uh, Macedonia were the four um, powers at the time. And Ptolemy was the one that had control over Israel, that area, that part of the world, which later fought, and then the Seleucia came in. So there was fighting, infighting after Alexander the Great, but it was the Greek Empire, and they were Hellenizing, which means to make things Greek, Greek culture, Greek language. Um, so Israel had been, it had been hundreds of years where they'd been expecting this Messiah this, to come, their Savior. Um, so you have to realize they'd never seen any, they'd never had a visitation from God. Their parents hadn't, their grandparents hadn't, their great-grandparents hadn't. So they've been longing for this for a long, they had the scripture, they had the Torah and the Tanakh, but they themselves had not seen God's hand or not seen, heard from God. Um, and now Messiah was here. Okay. And... So, so my question, my question is, where are you today? Do you know the Messiah? Have you asked Jesus for forgiveness? It's not just a one-time deal. We don't just do an altar call. We don't just come up, receive the Lord, and then go on about our lives. That's not what the scripture says. It says we have to repent and turn from our old way of life. We have to do a, a 180. It's something we must do every day. It says we need to, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. So, you know, maybe you know, you've known the Lord. Or maybe you're going through an extremely difficult time in your life right now. Like this widow, you feel abandoned by God. But God's there. And he wants us, he allows, like I said, he allows these trials to come into our lives. Turn to James chapter 1. Verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, I know in my lifetime I've had some very difficult trials. And like I said, I've failed miserably in a lot of them. 
Um, but God knows what you're going through. And regardless of what it is, I mean, this has been a rough year for a lot of people. People have lost their businesses. They've lost their jobs. People have lost their houses. They've lost their livelihood. Uh, I myself have lost my job. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of people, it's been uh, rough for a lot of people. But God wants us to, to know that he always cares for us. He's always there for us. And he allows trials into our lives because he knows that they're going to perfect them. Even Job, who probably went through the most horrible trial, he says, I know that I will come forth as silver and as gold, that God was refining him. And when they refine, they would refine gold or silver, they would take it and the smelter would remove the dross. They would, all the impurities would come up. They'd melt the gold and come up and they would remove it and scrape the top until they could see themselves until it was like glass. It was like, they could see, it was like a mirror. They could see that means the gold was pure, that all the junk had been taken out. And that's what trials are. Trials are to us. Trials, it says, like I said, it says here, it says, let that, once he has been approved, blessed is the man who perseveres on a trial. Do we persevere when we're going through a hard time? Do we, do we stick it out? Do we, cry out to the Lord? Do we stay with the Lord? Do we seek him? Or do we turn from him and blame him and get bitter? So, like I said, where are you at today? Are you this, are you like the woman? Are you suffering? You're having a hard time? Life has just dealt you a bad hand and things are, are not good right now. The Lord knows what you're going through. Like I said, he knows and he cares for you. He cares very much. Um, maybe you're like the sun. Maybe you've, you're dead. I know I've walked away from the Lord before where I was spiritually dead. But God's merciful and compassionate. He will, he will take you back. The prodigal son. He loves you so much. It says God ran. It says that he ran. As, it was a picture of the father. But the, the prodigal son, his father ran to him when he saw him coming. And he was coming with his tail between his legs because he had blown all his money. He had nothing. He goes, maybe I could just go back and be a servant in my father's household because they live better than us. I'm feeding pigs. And, and for a Jew to feed a pig, believe me, was a pretty humbling thing in that time. But what does it say? It said the father saw him from far off and he ran to him. And that's, that's our God. That's how compassionate our God is. So maybe you've gotten away from the Lord. Maybe you're, you're spiritually dead right now. You know? Or maybe you're like someone in the crowd that you're just witnessing like, wow, what's going on here? What is all this? Who is this Jesus? Who is he? Well, he's the savior of the world. And he's the king of glory. And he wants, us, he wants us all to turn to him. If you don't know him, he's, he, he, he's crying out. It says, it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let all those come. Drink from the, drink from the, the water. We have such an such incredible, compassionate, amazing God. And like I said, the story when I first started reading this story, it was just, I thought, wow, just look how compassionate he is. He 
raised once, especially once I understood what a widow was going through in that, in that time, in ancient times, how, what their life would be like without a protector, without a son. And then I thought, wow, this is just incredible. What a great, just a story of compassion and God's amazing, amazing compassion and love. But then as I studied it more and more and meditated, I realized it was so much more than that. It was God proclaiming, coming out as I'm, I'm the expected one. I'm the Messiah, showing he has power over death. He just speaks it, and they rise. He doesn't have to call anyone else throughout all the Bible. They have to call on the name of the Lord. They have to call to God. Jesus never had to call on the name of the Lord because he was the Lord. So again, if you're wondering if you don't know the Lord, if you're here today and you don't know him, he longs for you, says that he desires all men to come to repentance and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Uh, he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He's so, so good to us. I just thought of a scripture. Let's turn to Ezekiel. I believe it's chapter 18. Hope my memory's right. Okay, Ezekiel eighteen twenty three. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God rather than he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and does according to all that the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds, which he has done, will not be remembered. For, and he will not be remembered for his treachery, which he has committed, and his sin, which he has committed for them, he will die. So anyone who thinks that once saved, always saved, just take a look at the, read, read Ezekiel 18. But on the flip side, the good news is, um, I believe verse 30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that your iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore repent and live. So if you think that you come to the Lord and, okay, I'm cool, I'm a Christian, I, but I can go live like hell, you're wrong. But if you've fallen away, also the good news is you can come back because God calls for you. He, takes no, he doesn't take delight in the death of the wicked. He wants you to return to him. And me being someone who's, who's walked away from the Lord before, you know, they'll use the once saved, always saved, we'll use a call, oh, 
God, nothing can snatch me out of his hand. And you're right, no one can snatch you out of his hand. But you can get up and walk out of his hand. You have free will. And so, anyway, I don't think I'm going to have an hour and 15 minutes like Joe does to do a teaching. So um, I thought I prepared enough stuff here. But anyway, my point is God is so gracious, so loving, so compassionate, so merciful, and he's calling for each one of us to not only to receive that mercy and that compassion, but also to show it to others. Um, Let's pass out the cup and the bread. Sure is nice to have the the matzah back instead of the little communion wafers and the little cup. the real deal, man. Come on, man. I don't want that thing. (laughs) I love the matzah. It's pierced. It's striped, bruised. It's without leaven, which in the Bible is a picture of sin. And Jesus said, this is my body. It's no coincidence, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem means house of bread. And he's, he's, the, he's the bread of life, he said. They come down from heaven. Lord, we just thank you so much that you are such a good God. Thank you for showing us more of your character through your word, Lord. Thank you for revealing things, wonderful things to us, Father. And Lord, thank you for what you did on the cross, for that incredible, amazing gift. You said, do this in remembrance of me. And don't do it in an unworthy manner. Ask God to forgive you. If you have anything uh, in your heart that's not right, give it to the Lord. Lord, we just thank you so much. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for giving your body. Eat the bread. Then he took the cup. He said, this is my blood, which I shed for the many. God shed his blood for the whole world to remove our sins, Lord. Thank you so much for shedding your blood for us, your incredible mercy. Take the cup.
All right, I hope that um, you all have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday afternoon. Um, hope all the husbands come back safely. I know that many of you are waiting anxiously, and uh, just thank God for his incredible mercy, his grace. His, uh, he's so good to us. Again, thank you so much, and everybody have a blessed and wonderful day. Thank you.